This is an ABC podcast. Well, what a day this is. It's the day that you will end up telling your grandchildren about, no doubt, at some point. I don't mean if you've already got them. I mean if they are sometime in your distant future. That's right. Liverpool 5, Atalanta 0. It's uh, quite an extraordinary event. There is also an election that is taking place that has grabbed a lot of people's attention, and we're going to talk uh, a little bit about that. This is The Minefield. Welcome to the show. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life every now and again. In fact, increasingly often, something is thrown our way that we simply cannot negotiate. We just do our best to talk about it for as long as we can and make sense. This is one of those days. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Scott, I think we need to begin by coming completely clean on the production and broadcast schedule of the show <laughs> right, is the right, only right. way of taking our audience with us uh, on this journey. Yeah, yeah. As it, as it turns out, the timing of this broadcast isn't ideal, I'll admit that. There are, of course, some things taking place around the world, perhaps particularly in the US, that I'm sure a lot of people would like us to be talking about. But we're not really talking about that today. We are talking about US politics, but not necessarily this election. Instead, what it is we want to talk about is what really we've seen about democracy over the last four years. Have the four years of the Trump presidency revealed to us democracy's fragility or disclosed democracy's resilience? Well, can I um, – I don't talk a lot about movies on this show. I think a lot about movies, but I don't talk a lot about them. One of my favorite films, if you'll indulge me for a moment, is Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I remember the first time I saw it, you know, because everyone sort of loved it so much and said it's one of these great sort of hope-inducing films about the goodness of democracy and whatever. I didn't get it the first time that I saw it because it seemed to me that it's actually not about the goodness of democracy at all, much less what one good man can do if he goes to Washington. The whole film – is about graft and impotence. The only thing that Jimmy Stewart, Jefferson Smith, has going for him is that he can register an astonishing degree of abuse and political violence and manipulation uh, surrounding him. But there's one particular scene at the beginning of the film that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Remember this this kind of impotent governor, uh, Happy Hopper, who is trying to decide there's a vacancy, a senatorial vacancy in his state, and he has to nominate one of two candidates to fill a vacancy. Uh, And he can't decide between a party hack or an ideological firebrand. Both sort of sides are are pushing him for for this particular appointment. And in desperation, he flips a coin and, of course, the coin lands on its side, uh, resting against a stack of papers. Of course it has. Of course it does. And the stack of papers has a story about Jefferson Smith on the front and then off the story goes. I've been thinking a lot about the election of Donald Trump in 2016 as a coin flip. If you think about it, it really could have gone either way. He lost the popular vote. The margin was tight enough that with a few differences in, say, Wisconsin and Michigan, things really could have been different. And then just imagine how different – our estimation of democracy and democracy's health and well-being would have been over the last four years had the coin gone the other way. Even if no other – nothing other took place, no other change took place on the ground, if just that one coin flip was different, 
we would be talking about democracy over the last four years, I think, very, very differently. So here's, here's my question. What has the last four years of Donald Trump in office shown us? What have we seen? What has become visible for us through the contingency of that election? What have we seen about democracy? Has his presidency demonstrated democracy's resilience, the fact that it can withstand someone like Donald Trump, that it has the internal resources in forms of transparency and oversight and mutual accountability, uh, um, uh, not to mention sort of decorum and residual norms? Or has the last four years of Donald Trump shown us ultimately democracy's fragility, just how easily democracy can become internally dysfunctional and just how reliant democracy is not so much on laws but on norms, on accepted conventions and even things like decorum and common decency? So which democracy are you talking about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we can talk quite specifically about U.S. democracy because Westminster democracy, democracies that come more explicitly uh, out of the British tradition, I think there are certain things that are internal to it that make it a bit more difficult to derail in the way that Donald Trump has. But I think there's certain things about U.S. democratic culture that we've seen that are instructive, I think, beyond U.S. borders. Yeah. You don't um, agree? No, I think you're right. Uh, um, one thing I think that has happened over the last four years is I've become increasingly appreciative of Australia's political arrangements. Um, yeah, that's true. Even more so than the UK. And I don't know how to say this without it becoming quite hackneyed, but I, I think the presence of preferential compulsory voting in Australia is one of the great gifts that this country has. Um, and m almost every Australian will agree with that and almost every American will want to chase me down some rabbit hole or other for merely saying it. Um, I know this because I once wrote something similar in the New York Times and have never had a response to anything <laughs> quite like it. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those clear dividing lines in the way that Australians and Americans think. And I imagine Brits would be closer to Americans on the question. Yeah, but true. I do think it is a really, really fundamental element of it. Um, the broader question, though, let me, let me begin by observing that I think you're asking the right question. In that, I think far too much. It's very much. magnanimous of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. No, I know. no. Normally, you say, "I think you're putting this all wrong." The better way of asking yes. the question is. <laughs> no, I'm in a very good mood today. Um, oh, are very, you? Being very generous because, like I said, is this Liverpool? Five, <laughs> <Atlanta>. <laughs> no. Um, no, I think I, I think it's the right question because I and look, I, I'm happy to be shouted down over this. I, I may well be wrong on this point, but my sense is that the significance of the Trump presidency is overstated. Mm -hmm. And even, I think, the significance or the consequence of this election result is overstated um, in that I think actually one of the dirtiest secrets of the Trump administration is how little it has achieved. Um, it has made all kinds of horrible rhetorical and tonal contributions and it has accelerated really malignant forces but I don't think those forces go away depending on the result of this election. Mm. And I think those forces had been building in the United States for a long time and even in other parts of the world. Um, you know, Brexit happened before Trump, for example. Uh, they're not the same thing, but there's a, there's a kind of sibling resemblance, shall we say, family mm. resemblance. Mm. Um, and we've seen similar motions, uh, movements in Australia. So for me, the greatest 
damage that the Trump administration has done um, in a democratic sense is to the very notions of institutions, the undermining of just democratic bedrock institutions. And probably even more than all of it is his very successful and ceaseless war on epistemology, really. Yeah. That what has been... The, the reason I think this election result probably is less consequential than other people uh, are suggesting is that you already have a country that has no basis on which to agree on facts and knowledge and information. And once you reach that point, we sort of overlook when we think about democracies, don't we, that they kind of assume a common enough epistemology. <laughs> we kind of forget to say that because it seems so obvious, but also so permanent in our lives, right? That, that we debate about what the facts mean, but we don't usually debate the existence of really basic facts. We're now in a world where that happens. And Americans particularly are in a world where that happens. And that is really, really serious damage, I think. Um, and so maybe the great fragility of democracy that has been uncovered is the one that we didn't consider a fragility at all. And that is that it only works where there is a basis for discussion. Forget, you can have you further conversations about the quality and the tone of that discussion. Before all that, you need a basis for it. Mm. And I've been genuinely surprised, I think, at how rapidly and thoroughly that basis has been eroded. That's not just about Trump. Trump emerges at a particular moment in what you might call postmodern history that makes that possible. But I think it's the thing, the thing, that um, invites any suggestion that democracy might have run its course. That, like, once that happens... I don't know what more democracy has to offer. And so that has to be corrected if democracy yeah. is to have a viable future, I think. Yeah, look, I, I think that's right. And I think that's unbelievably important, which is why when people say that Trump hasn't done very much because he's, you know, his whatever malignancy he's had or whatever war he's waged has been pr pretty much at the level of words and rhetoric. I feel like saying, my God, I mean, politics is the stuff of words and rhetoric. There are few things that matter more within our common life than our ability to inhabit the shared vernacular and rhetorical spaces one another. I mean, one of the things that I quite love is the way that Raymond Gaeta, uh, for instance, in a piece a couple of years back in Mianjin, uh, said that one of the things that Donald Trump has done for which really politically and morally he should never be forgiven is eliminate the possibility of a shared space within which we can call one another to moral seriousness. In other words, where you can invite one another to say, come, come on, I mean, do you really mean what you just said? Have you really thought through the implications if you want me to take you seriously? But I think what well, if you just dig one step down beneath that, I, mean, I love the way that you've said this is a war of epistemology and for democracy to proceed, it actually needs something like a fundamental claim to the truth of the world around which people can gather. I think that's right. I think that's profoundly right. But I think we need to say why it is that that's right. For democracy to be democracy and for it to be what I believe it is, which is a moral order, um, democracy has to exist within the twin pillars of hope and despair. Democracy is about an aspiration for our common life, for life together and a life that hopefully continues to uh, tend towards a certain degree of justice, mutual affection and genuine political love. But 
democracy doesn't always proceed that way. Democracy proceeds also or it, it goes on through a series of reversions through which we are thrown into despair. But the thing that keeps us going together is the belief that that despair is never permanent, that failures are never lasting, that defeats are never the last word. But we always have the possibility, we always have the opportunity to forge those relationships better, to achieve something like virtuous compromises more effectively, and to get a better result next time. When you have the collapse of something like a common world, and the contests in, with which we engage one another are existential contests. If this person gets back in office, everything is lost. If this person wins, this person is going to invite Section 8 public housing to your suburb and your white way of life in the affluent suburbs is going to be over for good. When contests become existential, democracy cannot survive because all that right. matters, all that matters is the result, is, de is, the result, is yeah. defeating your opponent. And, and for me, I mean, that is the most, that's the most fearful thing about this, which is why, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're going to hate this or not, I have loved the lack of ambition in Joe Biden's campaign. I've loved the fact that his is a campaign without teleology, without end, without destiny, without goal. It is simply a campaign about healing, about recovering something like decency, and about learning how to listen to one another once again. To my mind, there are few greater things that democracy can dedicate, it to, uh, de dedicate itself to than precisely that. So what's interesting, though, is that even the listening is political, though. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, that's right. So that's how thoroughgoing... Yes. I think this has been. Uh, you're listening to The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, uh, which you might be doing right now. But you can catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app if you like. And you can also subscribe to our podcast, which comes with extra content. So please do that wherever you do such things. Now we have a guest to try to clear our minds. We do indeed. Michael Odancha is Deputy Director of the Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences at, at Australian Catholic University. He's also Professor of American History, which makes him just about the perfect person to talk to on a show like this, on a topic like this. Michael, welcome back to the Minefield. Great to be with you again, Scott and Waleed, and maybe the best or maybe the worst. I don't know whether expertise counts for much these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, fundamentally not, but we're willing to go with you anyway. Um, uh, look, one, one of the things that we haven't really brought up here, uh, it's probably undergirt an awful lot of what Waleed uh, has said. It certainly undergirds a lot of what I've been thinking about, is that, I mean, Trump said quite overtly in a recent 60 Minutes interview that if it wasn't for Twitter, he wouldn't be in office. There's, there's an awful lot of blame, I think, which these days is sheeted home to Trump. It seems to me that he inhabits a space that has been created for him. He only inhabits that space because we've tilled the field. Everyone who engages in this public space that is increasingly defined by social media, I think, is to some extent really cultivated the ground within which something like Trump could emerge. I just wonder, though, people who engage in social media in this Trump age, they don't think they're just engaging in partisan politics. They think they're engaging in a profoundly moral form of political disagreement. I just wonder to what extent is the very fact that people are thinking about political disagreements in overtly moral terms, is that one of the things that's damaging our common democratic culture? 
Big question, and I'm not sure that I know the answer, but my my speculation, Scott, would be something like this, that, and, it, and it builds on what you and Walid were talking about earlier, that, that increasingly I see polarisation everywhere I look, certainly in the United States, where people uh, see politics as a zero-sum game. Um, you know, I win, you lose. I'm right and I know it. You're wrong and I know it. And so if, if politics becomes, and, you know, politics through social media, say, becomes uh, more about war than conversation, it's becoming more about, you know, as you've said, winning uh, and destroying the other side than it is about conversation. And, of course, it's conversation that makes compromise and with its solutions possible. I don't see a lot of that. Uh, at the moment, and I think social media, which uh, I'm not a participant on really, amplifies some of those disturbing trends uh, within politics and certainly in the United States. Um, Waleed, can I, can I put something to you here that you and I have never talked about, but it, for, for me is interesting fodder for this particular conversation. The scariest moment, I'll confess, that I've had at any stage of the first four years of Donald Trump wasn't hearing anything that Trump has said, but it's hearing what I can only refer to as a liberal left-wing snuff dream of a Trump victory off the back of a popular vote defeat. In other words, he wins the Electoral College, doesn't win the popular vote, and leftists and liberals no longer willing to live under the Trump tyranny are forced to secede from the union so that they don't have to share that common political space with Trump and his band of acolytes. This this longing for a kind of moral democratic purity, which loses the very moral dimension of not just conversation but of compromise. I, 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 find the, I, I found the fact that that was even being floated, much less applauded, really, really scary. I mean, that, that, that's the moment for me where I think just about everything is lost. Right. But um, I feel like all of the discussions we're having about the way democracy is meant to work and the idea that it shouldn't be a winner-take-all thing and so on, that presupposes that the participants in this, and especially the candidates in this, observe certain limits. I suppose this is what happens, though, when those limits become breached. And in democratic institutional terms, I don't know, Michael, but you tell me, what limits has Donald Trump not breached? I mean, when when he's calling into question an election result before it happens, which he did in 2016, by the way, so that's not a new thing. Um, I can't think of an institution he's left untouched. The, The intelligence establishment he's attacked, the courts he's attacked. There is nothing, it's a scorched earth approach. So I suppose the question then becomes, what's left of that if you're, if you're on the other side of that argument? These democratic niceties that we're talking about, can they be observed in that sort of context? Uh, in the future, I hope so. At the moment, I, I don't see a lot of that. Um, you know, as you say, with, with Trump, you know, he calls for his opponents to be locked up. He uses the Justice Department to conduct vendettas, 
Um, he looks after friends by commuting their sentences. He gives his family the best jobs. Um, he offers uh, foreign governments uh, protection for giving them um, intel or dirt on, on his opponents. At the moment, uh, I don't see that there are boundaries that he's not willing to break down. Uh, I, I sort of feel that the last three or four years uh, it's been a consistent pushing out of the boundaries and the norms that we expect to see or that we've become, to some extent at least, accustomed to. I also think, well, it, you know, Scott's point about talk of secession, I mean, there's, you know, there's precedent for this in American history. I mean, um, in some ways, domestic parallels are hard to identify with the current moment. But, you know, the closest election is probably, you know, and of course I'm going to say it, the election of 1860, when uh, slaveholders were just totally uh, refusing to accept any Republican president. And, you know, when Lincoln was elected, you know, off they went. And, you know, the ideological issues today are probably not as extreme. The country is probably less sectional. Uh, but the tone, the language um, is quite reminiscent of that time. But, uh, but I think, and, and you're, you're right, Michael, but I think one of the interesting things is for Lincoln, of course, the union itself was morally sacrosanct to the point that he was willing to make what we would describe, I think, as quite morally obnoxious or noxious compromises in order to preserve the union at all cost. I guess one of the things that's, that's interesting for me is, you know, I mean, there were some criticisms of, of, of Biden earlier this year that he is a largely kind of lethargic or not overly inspiring, certainly past his prime candidate, without any real distinctive platform. He's not really promising much of anything apart from a return to decency. I mean, surely someone like Elizabeth Warren with her sort of both, uh, both intellectual uh, and policy horsepower, surely someone like her would be far more impressive in this kind of role. Um, but I, I guess I find it, and, and here I may well be going against both of you, I actually find it kind of hopeful or hope-inducing that someone who has promised nothing more than a return to decency, a promise to grieve with Americans who are grieving, and the hope that we might learn to speak to one another once again through appealing across partisan lines – that, that someone like that has achieved fairly widespread popular support. There's something in that. You know, for all, you know, Lincoln, of course, was romantically attached to the importance of union. I, I, I kind of feel that even though it's not as noble as that, maybe there is something hope inducing about the sheer modesty, about the decency of the Biden campaign. Good luck, Michael, because Scott's left you a minute. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, Wally, do you go? Um, okay. Look, um, no, look, I'm inclined to agree with that. I think what Biden promises is, is hope and renewal after, essentially after the disruption and the chaos of the Trump presidency. And I think the fact that he is a sort of a centrist compromise candidate, okay, sure, he's strongly anti-Trump, um, but the fact that he's been chosen by the Democrats 
because I suppose of his potential to appeal to or at least not to alienate many of the people who supported Trump in 2016 or who stayed at home because they couldn't bring themselves to vote for either Trump or Hillary. I think that's probably a good thing. Hmm. All right. Lots more to get stuck into, I fancy, uh, on this day. Michael Ondaatje is uh, Deputy Director of the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences and Professor of American History at the Australian Catholic University. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're going to do the podcast bit now. We'll see you on the radio next week. Bye. Um, Michael, one of the things that I think we have seen over the last four years, precisely because Trump is a norm-breaking president who simply doesn't regard, I think, any of the forms of internal restraint or statesmanship that other presidents uh, have exercised. Uh, even, even going back and listening to someone like Richard Nixon, you think, my goodness, you know, there was something positively presidential <laughs> about, about him in comparison. Uh, one of the things I think his lack of restraint has shown us is just how powerful the executive is in American politics, just how protected the executive can be from certain forms of uh, congressional, judicial, independent oversight. Michael, do you think the fact that presidential restraint is so much a matter of norms, is that a positive thing in American democracy? Or do you think that's a drawback that's going to have to be corrected in years to come? Presidential restraint, I think, is 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 certainly a good thing. Um, I mean, you look you look at the, the Trump presidency, where he has, as you say, acted in contravention of many of the norms, and where he's had uh, a party that has, you know, has has really got behind him. But if if the concentration in the executive had been greater. Um, and if checks and balances had not been there and working the way we've uh, at times criticised in the past, certainly I have, um, you know, the, the extent of what we are talking about today uh, might well be a lot greater. Um, I wonder, Scott, whether I can also find a way to link this back to what we were were talking about before. I don't know whether I'm breaking the rules of the show uh, no, in no. doing this. But, such a but Trump. I, don't you find that Michael is such a Trump, Scott? I've <laughs> always said this about him. Oh, uh, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, look, I think, I, I think you know, you, you can look at Trump on the one hand and you, you, you compare him to the alternative candidate today on the other. And one of the things about Biden and why I think he's, his candidacy is so powerful is, as I was saying before, the notion of, of a compromise candidate in, a, in an election where the country is so internally divided. I can't imagine, for example, uh, Joe Biden referring to Trump supporters or would-be Trump supporters as the deplorables. I can't imagine, I, ca- I can't imagine him running a campaign of the kind that, well, certainly that Trump has run in 2016 and again in 2020 and that, that, that a Bernie Sanders might have run. And I suppose what I'm, what I'm saying here is that if you, if you look at the last three or four years, we've, we've seen a president who has really governed very much for his supporters uh, for one part of the country. With the selection of Joe Biden, I think we we have a party that presented a candidate who can build bridges uh, to some Trump supporters, who can build bridges 
uh, to some conservative independents uh, and, to, and to Republicans who are less than enthusiastic about the president. And this exercise, I think, for that reason, uh, if for no other, is, is a positive one and a really important first step in kind of, and it, and it is a first step, but reconciling uh, the nation. Can I get you to expand a bit more, though, Michael, on what you're saying about the shackles upon the executive, um, the checks and balances that you'd previously been sceptical of? Um, What are the examples of that playing out during the Trump presidency? Well, I mean, most most of what Trump has done, um, certainly in the last couple of years, has been by executive order. And if you are, are, for example, sceptical of some of those things... You, you would know that uh, the, the next president um, can come in, review those decisions and, you know, assuming, uh, as may well be the case, that uh, he holds the House and the Senate, um, can undo those things. Um, Trump has not been able, certainly in the last couple of years, uh, to get his way on a lot of things. So, for example, he has promised... Uh, he promised to overturn Obamacare, replace it with uh, a Trump health package. We haven't seen that. Um, he promised to build a wall. He hasn't been able to do that uh, with Mexico. There have been lots of restraints. beyond When you when you push beyond the sort of rhetoric, there have actually been a lot of things, much to Trump's frustration, that have disabled him um, from uh, pr- pursuing... Uh, some of the promises that he that he made in 2016. So you're talking mostly about Congress there, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these are not inherent checks and balances necessarily, are they? As you rightly point out, it, it's got to do with which parties control what. Um, you mentioned Trump's reliance on executive order, um, or executive orders. Um, this was a criticism that was heavily levelled at Barack Obama, exactly the same mm, that's right. point, right? Mm. That, um, right. He had incorrigible um, Congress and so he found his way around via executive order and here we are. So I don't know what that actually means, Scott, to come back to the point that you make. Does that mean an expansion of the executive because everything's being done via executive order or does that mean well, see, the limitation of the executive because it can't I be think that's a fabulous question, Willie, because just, just remember that so many people kind of applauded Barack Obama's willingness to govern by executive order precisely because of the obstructionist or what was going to report. I'm just going by the reported, re- reporting vernacular, you know, an obstructionist Senate, obstructionist Congress that simply wouldn't let him do what he promised or wanted to do. At the time, you know, this is this is a congressional logjam. We need to empower the executive to do to fulfill their campaign promises. Now, under the conditions of a Trump presidency, the very fact of congressional oversight and limitation now seems one of the great um, kind of you know governing democratic virtues. Look, I, I would be very, very, very surprised. I mean, I think we need to say something meaningful about the nature of executive governing by executive order. I think there is something about that that ought to be far less common than it is. I don't want to say anything about the levels of frustration that President Obama must have lived through in not being able to get through what seemed like sort of very reasonable uh, things but also campaign promises. But I think one of the things that we really do need to see in the wake of the Trump experiment uh, is a further curtailing not so much maybe of the the president's ability to govern by executive decree – 
But I think what's really frightened me about the Trump presidency is just how much discretionary power he has over other forms of oversight and law enforcement that are supposed to provide those, say, extremists, those in extremist forms of check and balance over the president's behavior. I mean the very fact, for instance, that the people who are supposed to be holding him to account are themselves either political appointees or people who can be dismissed and replaced by political appointees. I mean there's something about that that I think is far more troubling, far more challenging. Uh, I would hope that maybe one of the lessons of the Obama slash Trump presidencies and one of the lessons we learn in a Biden presidency, God willing, um, uh, would would be the importance of president as master of the Senate in the way that, say, Lyndon Johnson was and in the way that Biden has promised. But see, that, that requires a recasting of Congress itself, doesn't it? So if, if Congress is one of the great checks and balances on presidential power, and it seems from Michael's account of the Trump presidency, it is, it's probably the main one, then the thing to observe is just how partisan all of Congress has become, right? Mm. You see this in the reluctance of Republicans throughout Trump's first term to take a stand against him in all Mm. kinds of situations. You're seeing it increasingly on the way that voting goes on appointments such as to the Supreme Court, which was just not something that happened previously, right? The numbers tended to be almost um, unanimous in these things. You'd go through the process, but there was a kind of there was a sense of being called to a higher purpose here and the partisan warfare was not the thing that predominated. Now there is only partisan warfare and I'm not sure that that's going anywhere because I'm also not sure that that's only a Republican thing. I think the Republicans bear a large share of the blame, perhaps even the lion's share. And I think if you look at the Obama term and the, the way that the Republicans immediately responded to Obama's election. I think you can see that play out. But that doesn't mean the Democrats aren't playing the same game. And so that doesn't change, right? What, what's happening there is the hyper-politicisation of the checks and balances. And, and if that's the case, are they checks and balances any longer? Or do we have to find different words to describe them? Can, can I just say, Waleed, um, that, that what you're describing also describes the country so if you look at if you look at you know the and these are deep sociological kind of currents i mean you look at the gop base overwhelmingly white becoming more working class less formally educated um and poorer Uh, the democratic base increasingly college educated increasingly minorities broadly defined and i think with this hardening of of boundaries i mean we you know you talk about polarisation, talk about acute partisanship, but with the hardening of these boundaries around the parties, elections, I think, have become more than just about, you know, parties competing over this policy or that policy or even ideas that are worth talking about. But increasingly, they are experienced by by people, um, and I include politicians in that, but certainly by um, people on the ground as either an affirmation or a rejection of their core identities as people, who they are as as human beings. And, and that's why and, I wonder, and, sorry mm. if, if I interrupted you there, but that's no, why I wonder no. if this idea of Biden as the compromise candidate who represents, if anything, um, say civil deliberation or whatever, that's why I'm not sure that I'm persuaded by that characterisation because that itself becomes a part of political identity. And if, and if identity has ossified in the way that you're describing, Biden 
merely becomes appropriated into that. I don't see that he recasts any of that because you're no longer in a realm of an exchange of anything. You're in a realm of a contest of identities that cannot be resolved no. except through victory. Yeah, look at what well, – uh, sorry, Michael, I'm really eager to hear what, what you have to say about this. Can I just add one very, very small footnote to that though, whereas I – mean, this is where I disagree with you, Waleed. I, I don't think Biden represents the return to civil dialogue candidate. I think he represents the refusal of contempt candidate. And I think there's a difference. I think there's that. been Michael, a fair bit of contempt towards Trump in his campaign. No, no, that that is that is true. That is true, but not contempt for Trump's supporters. And I think the difference there is vital. Michael made reference before to Hillary Clinton's famous description of Trump and his basket of deplorables. I mean, there, it seems to me since we're talking about where democracy is resilient and where it's fragile, there is nothing that is more corrosive to a democratic culture than one side treating another side with contempt, which is simply to say there is nothing that you have to say that I need to hear and our politics would be better if you had no voice at all within it. That – I mean, I think you're right. There's been more than enough contempt to go around on both sides. But it's been the absence of the rhetoric of contempt that is a decent step forward, I think, in the restoration of something like a political culture that does, in fact, stand a claim of being described as decent. And I think that's the thing, right? It, it's a it's a first step and it, and it's a small step, but I think it's an important step. I mean, I think the word deplorables, what's significant about that was, the you know, it's used as a noun. So that suggested to me this sort of judgment that the polity, perhaps even the country and the world would be better if these people did not exist. And um, a refusal to look past some of the... Um, the overheated rhetoric about Trump supporters, you know, i.e. they're all racists or they're all bigots or they're all anti-immigrant, to finding some common ground. And I think, you know, that that's the real issue here, that I don't think Biden is the answer to that in the long term, but a step on the road. I think the larger question about, you know, what is the answer to that is, well, you look historically at what's been required to address big issues of polarisation. I mean, it's usually some massive external shock or war or, dare I say, a pandemic. And, you know, that brings, you know, us to, to COVID, that this, this is an opportunity for a president to bring the country together around a solution to a massive problem which Trump has not seized. That opportunity has not been seized. A new president able to talk about the pandemic in a different way, pursue strategies in a different way. There is a kind of, because of course, connected to that is the rebuild of the economy. So there's a trigger effect. So this would be the opportunity for Biden, I think, in terms of trying to, to have a first go at breaking some of the deeper, wider cleavages in, in, in the United States. So as we are saying all of these things, um, we should remind podcast listeners that 
We're talking quite early in this process, so we don't know. You will probably know our result when we don't, um, or at least much closer to a result. But as we are doing this, Scott, I'm seeing reports talking about the highest voter turnout in a century. Yeah. In the United States. Um, We've been discussing the illness of American democracy. Does the extent of that voter turnout alter the analysis? Yes. 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 Uh, and not just not just the extent of voter turnout in the context of a pandemic, but also uh, you, you both might roll your eyes at this. I was fully expecting there to be overt displays of violent voter intimidation and overt demonstrations of political violence. These things may still come, but the fact that there has been high voter turnout, the fact that that turnout has been largely peaceful. I think there are two things that we can take from this. (laughs) One is it may well be that the extremities of social media and the extent to which social media rhetoric is interested and incentivized to be as existential in its description of the threat that one's opponents Uh, pose to oneself. That may well not be an accurate description of the real world, Uh, that it may well be that there has been something winsome and attractive enough about a promise of decency, of a return to something like um, vocational virtue in the presidency, and something like the refusal to be contemptuous of one's opponents. That may well tap into enough of what George Orwell described as the bedrock of common decency on which... There's there's uh, a lot going on here, though, Scott. You must be aware of how your observations about the lack of violence might age terribly and rapidly. I know, I know. You must be aware. Now, maybe they've aged spectacularly. I don't know. It depends, obviously. But you must be aware of that risk, at the very least. We don't yet know what that voter turnout signifies, because that depends so much on how the vote falls. It could well be what you're witnessing is the first protest vote in American history. Hmm. That, that is true. Can I just say one, one other thing, though? And I'm really I, I'm eager to hear what Michael might make of this. I have I'm really dating when it is I'm making this remark, but, you know, so, so be it. I can't sort of help myself. I have, I, I have a hope and I have, cons- uh, and I have a concern that are equally as strong with one another and have to do with exactly the same outcome. I think that the most healing thing that could take place in the coming decade in American political life is a virtuous Republican president. Um, And Trump may well have created the conditions within which a candidate like that can emerge. That is predicated on... Uh, if he wins. No, no. I, I mean Trump's last four years may well have created the conditions in which a truly virtuous Republican president might have So this only Someone... happens if he loses. Here's my point. The Trump defeat in 2020 would have to be resounding enough that it kills off the residual infection of Trumpism or the allure of Trumpism within the the Republican Party. If, however, that victory for the Democrats is resounding enough, then it may well embolden Democrats to be so contemptuous (laughs) of their vanquished opponents 
that it kills off the very possibility of a virtuous Republican <laughs> candidate further down. The- so, do, so it sounds like what you're saying I mean? is there is about a three-vote window. Yes, <laughs> yes, that is exactly – that is exactly – Trump has to lose by enough that no one is tempted – that, that this experiment is regarded as being such cataclysmic failure that no one is going to play at this game again. But it can't be so great that Democrats engage in a round of eight-year chest beating over just how despicable, deplorable, contemptuous Republicans themselves in fact are because that's just mm-hmm. the seedbed for a grievance candidate further down the yep. track. Last word to you, uh, Mark. We're already over time. But I think as well. Okay. Uh, well, the hope for the moderate Republicans is probably to be found in in the Lincoln Project, which has yeah. which has been working very hard uh, to support a future Biden presidency in recognition that um, Trump subverts a lot of the values that attracted these people to conservatism and to the Republican Party. In the first place. Now, if the if the the victory for the Democrats is resounding, it follows automatically from that that the defeat for a particular brand of conservatism, quote unquote, in the Republican Party, i.e., Trumpism, might uh, might be weakened to such an extent that, or to a sufficient extent, that it would make a comeback um, for a, a kind of Reagan-style conservatism within the Republican Party possible. But that would require not only a resounding defeat of Trump, but a fairly resounding defeat of Trump's supporters, what the Lincoln Project called Trump's enablers in the Senate. Hmm. Um, So um, it would have to be resounding uh, in, in that respect as well. It still doesn't address the underlying reasons that millions and millions of Americans have supported Trump. And my concern would still be that um, the the Republican Party will go where its voters are. And if they're still in Trump heartland, and if the concerns that put them there in the first place are still on the table and unaddressed, and these are serious concerns and not to be sneered at, then the hope for that that sensible or increasingly radical centre that Scott and I are talking about uh, might be forlorn. Mm. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure, Waleed. My pleasure, Scott. Liverpool 5, Atalanta nil. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.